As the cybersecurity attacks interrupt government services at the state and municipal levels, governors are calling on the National Guard for help more and more. For details on just how often this is happening and the implications, we turn to a senior fellow at the center-left think tank Third Way, Todd Rosenblum. Mr. Rosenblum, good to have you on. Tom, terrific to be with you today. And you took a look and found what? What's going on with the National Guard vis-a-vis cyber? What we found was an increasing role for the National Guard in assisting governors in responding to attacks on their networks. And as the nation has really seen a dramatic increase in the number of attacks, state and local governments are also in that same situation. So the Guard, which brings a tremendous skill set for cyber, which is something new traditionally for them, they're playing a key role now in a way that was not historically taking place. And I want to get into that role, but give us some of the numbers that have been occurring. So the numbers we're looking at, if you sort of went back 10 years ago, we were at zero. As we're looking at it today, we've seen a spike. We're still studying this, but what we saw certainly around um, the 2020 election, a significant increase in a situation in which the governors called on the National Guard to help do election security. That was a spike we saw in 2020. The numbers preceding that are lower, and we're we're studying now to see if this really was just a one-year spike or whether it's going to be a sustained role for the National Guard supporting governors in this capacity. And then there's the numbers for the ransomware and other types of cyber calls. So ransomware has really picked up as a threat to the nation. There's really nothing unique about ransomware attacks. It's just that it's a new profit-making way at which cyber criminals, state-sponsored organizations and criminal organizations themselves, have found a way to make money. And that also increased dramatically during the pandemic. And these criminal groups were targeting the most vulnerable during that time. For example, targeting schools and hospitals, where if their networks were locked, they were um, shut out of business. So there was a new urgency and a new rise in ransomware attacks. And this is where the National Guard started to play a stronger role for governors in defending networks. So we've got then 41 times since 2018 that the National Guard has been called out to provide cyber-related support. That 41 calls since 2018, how does that rank with all of the calls made to the National Guard by governors? Well, I don't have that exact number for you, but the Guard has traditionally played a significant role in every state in response to physical events, in response to floods, fires, hurricanes, natural disasters, for some law enforcement activities. And this is really the cyber domain is something new that we're seeing for the National Guard. As I mentioned, as we look at that number 40, half of that occurred during the 2020 election cycle. So we want to make sure that was not a one-off spike or whether this is going to be a trend that will continue going forward. Because a lot of cities and school districts have been hit by ransomware even before the 2020 election. I think we had Baltimore was the first big case where municipal functions basically stopped until they started restoring things. So does it look like it's continuing past the election now that we're almost to the midterms already? Two ways to answer that question. One, the rate and scope of ransomware attacks is picking up dramatically. And this is quite concerning. It's picking up dramatically all across the nation. And secondly, is as we look at what will the role of the Guard be going forward relative to other first responders for cyber events. And this is something we're interested in looking at 
because the Guard does bring a range of skill sets for cyber activities, but it also was designed and built for other purposes. Yeah, so you've got kind of a hybrid situation going here. We're speaking with Todd Rosenblum. He's a senior fellow at the think tank Third Way. And what services and skills specifically does the Guard bring to cyber incidents? So the Guard is our citizen soldiers, and they come from the private sector, and they serve the nation multiple ways. They are civilians in their civilian roles, and they come from all professions. They could be working in the, in the cyber or digital security field now, or they could be in a whole range of other types of professions. When called up, they bring those specialized skills for those that have it to add to the capacity of a state or when they're federalized, add to the federal government's capacity to identify cyber threats and respond to them. I guess you could see a situation in which both sides of the guard, suppose a cyber attack stopped municipal services or state services, and you had a fire or something, and it was tough for the local fire response to respond because of the cyber attack, then you would have both a physical need for the National Guard and a cyber need. Have we seen that happen yet? Well, we have seen physical effects of cyber events. The Colonial Pipeline is one example. The JBS Food Processing is another example where there are physical impacts of cyber events. Now, when we look at the Guard, we look at it in three ways. We look at the Guard calling them up to support the government in a cyber response and, as you said, in a physical response. But, of course, these are also citizen soldiers. These are people who have a civilian job, and some of them are working these very same issues at the same time that they are called up to do a cyber response. So in reality, there are situations where we are double or triple counting them, and we really need to do a hard look at as a country of how do we increase our overall capacity so we don't find ourselves in situations where we are double or triple tapping the same people to do one activity. Yes, because as we speak, there are not only a spate of cyber attacks and ongoing issues there, but three or four states are practically on fire. There are floods occurring here and there, and you know we're getting through a hurricane season. So lots of occasions where you can imagine the National Guard might be needed. Is your sense that the nation, the military, needs to think in terms of what should the overall capacity of the Guard be as they look at the future? So when you look at the military, you look at the National Guard as an element of the armed forces. The National Guard, from a federal perspective, is man-trained and equipped for warfighting purposes. It is not sized for supporting states or for when they operate in a state capacity. So the Pentagon has to evaluate what investments in the Guard versus what other investments it makes to achieve its warfighting objectives. And that has to be sacrosanct for the Department of Defense. So it really does not size the National Guard at all for how it might assist states. Now, there is a benefit to states and to the taxpayers, clearly, and the Pentagon does what it can to work with the National Guard Bureau and to work with governors about where National Guard forces might be located, what skill sets Guard from particular states might bring to bear. For example, on the West Coast, there are firefighting skills all throughout the state and within the National Guard. And so when the Pentagon looks at where is it going to keep its capacities, its military capacities to assist in firefighting, it logically will base them in a place like California. So that's the partnership. 
But the sizing of the National Guard is done for its federal war fighting missions. Got it. So maybe one way out of this is for some way for the states and the municipalities and the counties, for that matter, to increase their own cyber skills chops so that they won't need the National Guard so much. That's correct. In fact, we at Third Way have been looking at that issue and we're doing our evaluations today. And it really does appear to us at this point that the the cyber response capacity of civilians and of states and localities is insufficient for today's need. And so the federal government has a clear role in investing in civilian cyber capacities for states and localities. And there are partnership programs. DHS has grant programs, for example. There's legislation in Congress right now to establish a civilian cyber corps. These are positive developments because the threat of cyber is a whole of nation threat. And we need to mobilize across government, not just look to the military or the National Guard in particular, to be the primary response element for us. And we need to elevate the type of stakeholders and the capacity and numbers within those stakeholders for something that is clearly an enduring and persistent challenge. Keep your last resort as your last resort and develop a better first resort, in other words. Right. And that's where we look at a new paradigm with the National Guard. Again, traditionally, the National Guard has been looked at to give states an emergency response capacity for a flood, fire, hurricane, or perhaps a law enforcement emergency. But when we look at cyber, the challenge here is cyber is a persistent and ongoing threat. So that's where the Pentagon, that's where the National Guard Bureau, obviously, in its federal role at the Pentagon, and the governor's need to be looking holistically as a federal-state partnership and across federal government to help invest in capacity outside the Guard for what is a persistent requirement. Because I think what we'll end up finding is if we become over-reliant on the Guard, the Guard will not be ready for its military mission. Todd Rosenblum is Senior Fellow at Third Way. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate the time today. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands, 
Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. 
That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.